Well, in your bulletin this morning, there's some notes. If you'd like to follow along in the notes, I'd love for you to do that. Last week, my family went out to eat lunch after church. And uh, at some point in the lunch, one of my kids, I don't remember which one, but one of them said, how many more weeks are you going to mention that Chatterton guy? And if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you know who they're talking about. They were talking about a guy named William Chatterton Dix. And about 150 years ago, he wrote a poem, and the poem was titled The Manger Throne. And a few years after he wrote that poem, The Manger Throne, his lyrics were turned into the hymn that we sang this morning and that we've sang several times over the last few weeks, What Child Is This? And it's just a reflection on the identity of the baby that was born, the baby that we celebrate at Christmas. And in the hymn, in the poem, Dix gives several answers to the question, what child is this? He says, this is the king of kings. This is Christ the king. This is the babe, capital B, babe. And this is the son of Mary. In this sermon series, for the last four weeks, and this morning makes number five, the final week, we've been asking the same question, what child is this? And we've been looking to the gospel of Matthew for answers. And so far in Matthew, we've seen that this child that was born, the child that we celebrate at Christmas, is the Christ. He's the son of Abraham. He's the son of David. He's Emmanuel. And this morning, just very simply, the most obvious answer of all, as you look through the notes this morning, you can probably just fill in the big idea. You can probably fill the rest of them in. This is very basic stuff, but very important stuff. The baby we celebrate at Christmas is Jesus. We're going to talk this morning about the significance of the name Jesus. He's the Christ, the Messiah. He's the son of Abraham and the son of David. He's Emmanuel, God with us. And he's also Jesus. So every week we've read Matthew chapter 1. We're going to do the same thing this morning. We're going to read Matthew 1 verse 1 all the way to verse 25. And then we'll talk about what Matthew has to say about Jesus. Matthew 1 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asaph. Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. Joram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azer, Azer, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Eliud, Eliud, the father of Eliezer, Eliezer, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, 
of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son... And you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until, he, until she had given birth to a son, And he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Father, as we've read this chapter for the last month, as we've thought about Jesus' family tree, as we've thought about the story of his birth, as we've thought about the different titles, the different names given to him, we pray this morning that you would take a very simple idea and drive it home to our hearts. Father, give us understanding, but give us hearts to receive your word gladly and joyfully. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to jump right in with a question. This is on your outline. What does it mean to call Jesus, Jesus? And I'm going to give you a few thoughts here. Matthew tells us that the child was to be named Jesus because he would save his people from his sins. Matthew 121, call his name Jesus for he will save his people from his sins. You may remember that Luke says essentially the same thing in his account of the Christmas story. Matthew and Luke, the only two gospel writers to tell about the birth of Jesus. Hold your spot in Matthew 1 and flip over to Luke chapter 2, a passage we studied a few months back. Luke 2 verse 10, one of the most famous parts of of what the angels had to say to the shepherds. Luke 2.10, the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Matthew and Luke agree that this baby that was born is born as a Savior, born to save us. And you've got to admit, as Americans, we love the idea of a Savior. We love it. Just look at the movies that we shell out millions and millions of dollars to go see. We love movies where the good guys win, the good guy saves the day, and the bad guy loses, right? Disney knows this, Pixar knows this, Marvel Comics knows this, they all know it. And you can watch your fancy award shows with these, you know, educated movie critics, and they can give all the awards to the movies that end with no resolution, and you don't know who the bad guy is or the good guy, and you just sort of leave the movie feeling conflicted. I know that those movies get all the awards these days, but the people who vote with their wallet know what they want to see, right? We want to see a movie with good guys and bad guys. 
where somebody needs to be rescued and the good guys against all odds in the most unthinkable way save the day. That's what we want to see. And those movies resonate with us for a reason. People spend millions of dollars to see those movies for a reason. You know what the reason is? Those movies where the good guy, where the hero is the savior, they resonate with the one true story. They're like a faint echo for all the different details and all the plot twists and all the different characters that they might throw in there. They're like an echo of the one true story that changes everything. The story of a savior who came to save his people, to rescue his people, and to defeat evil, to defeat wickedness. And when you watch a a story in the movie theater and you see it up on the screen and it moves you, it's not just the music and it's not just the special effects and it's not just the storytelling, it's the plot line underneath it of a hero saving his people. That's our story. That's the one true story. A baby who was born, while Caesar sat on the throne, he's born in the back corner of the empire, in the cover of darkness, with shepherds and a few astrologers from the east coming. And Matthew tells us and Luke tells us that he was born to save his people from their sins. The Hebrew name that the angel wanted Joseph to give to his son is Joshua. Joshua. The Greek name is Jesus, and they both mean the same thing. Salvation is from Yahweh. This baby is is no ordinary baby. He's the Savior. He's the one who came to save you from your sins. And it begs the question, who did he come to save? What does Matthew mean when he says he will save his people from their sins? Let me give you a few thoughts. First of all, Jesus came to save his people. That's exactly what Matthew says. He will save his people from their sins. Immediately, his focus is on the Jewish people. Some of you guys, over the last few weeks, as we've read this genealogy, you've thought, I think we can skip this. I don't think we need to read all these names. Maybe once, but five times, all these names. He had this son, and this son, and this son, and the next one, and the next one. I can't pronounce half of them. Why do we need to read all of these names? It's because Matthew said he came to save his people. I don't know if you've noticed over the last five weeks as we've read these names, I know some of them maybe are not super familiar to you, but there's some people in this list who desperately needed to be saved. Let's just start with the first guy in the list, Abraham, old father Abraham. We talked about him a few weeks ago. Before God found Abraham, he was bowing down to and offering sacrifices to statues, idols. He was an idolater, and God saved him. Then we read about Jacob. Jacob was like a two-bit lying con man. If you met him today, I promise you wouldn't like him. He was deceitful. He was sneaky. He was tricky. He talked out of both sides of his mouth. He was not a nice guy. We read about somebody in Jesus' family here named Judah. Can I just be real honest with you about Judah? I can't even tell you the things that he did with children in the room. He is a rotten guy. 
to the core. His heart is twisted. You say, well, what about David? David was a pretty good guy. He was a man after God's own heart. But did you notice the detail that Matthew includes about David? David was the father of Solomon (coughs) by the wife of Uriah. This man after God's own heart had some very dark days in his life. Solomon, Mr. Wisdom, at the end of his life, marries tons of women and begins to bow down to idols just like Abraham. Just, just the same sin that Abraham had been brought out of, Solomon falls into it. On and on and on and on we go through the list. And Matthew says, look, who did he come to save? He came to save these people. Abraham all the way down to Joseph and Mary. His people needed to be saved and Jesus was the one who came to save them. But it's bigger than that. And Matthew tells us it's bigger than that. Because not only did he come to save, quote unquote, his people, he also came to save sinners like you and like me. And that's the next blank on your outline. Jesus came to save sinners from their sins. This is where you and I come into the story. I look around the room, there may be a, a few of you who are Jewish, ethnically, but most of you are not. You say, well, he came to save his people, his family. I'm not part of that family. The good news is he came to save people outside of his family. Look what Matthew says in chapter 1, verse 5. He mentions a guy named Boaz and a woman named Rahab. Then he mentions a guy named Obed and a woman named Ruth. You might remember Rahab, she was a prostitute who lived in Jericho. She wasn't Jewish, she was a Jerichoholic, Jerichoite, whatever you want to call it. She was one of the people under the curse of God. God said, kill all of them. And you remember how much trouble Achan got because he didn't give some of the gold and some of the clothing to God that had been placed under the band. He tried to keep it from himself. Well, here's a woman, a living, breathing person who walked out of Jericho alive. How? She acknowledged her sin. She acknowledged her folly. She left it behind to follow the one true and living God. What about Ruth? The Bible tells us that Ruth was a Moabite. And you say, well, who cares? Who are the Moabites? Well, the book of Deuteronomy says that the Moabites, because of their wickedness, were not allowed to be part of Israel even to the 10th generation. God's saying you can't bring these people into your fellowship. They're wicked people. Don't let them in. She got in. She walks right into Jesus' family line. How? There comes a point in her life where she says, these people are no longer my my people and these gods are no longer my gods and I'm going to follow the one true and living God. Jesus came to save sinners, sinners like Rahab, sinners like Ruth, sinners like the Apostle Paul. Look what the Apostle Paul said when he wrote to Timothy. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul knew his own heart. And Paul said, if you knew my heart and the blackness of it and the darkness of it and the twistedness of it and the depravity of it, you would understand how wicked I am and you would understand what a great truth it is that Jesus Christ came to save sinners just like me. 
Paul wrote the same thing to a pastor named Titus. He said, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. He's writing to Titus. He doesn't mean every single person is going to be saved. He's saying it's for all kinds of people. It's for the Ruths and the Rahabs and the Abrahams and the Davids and the Landons and the Pauls. For people like me and for people like you. This is a very simple statement that we're wrapping up with. Why should I celebrate the birth of Jesus? Because Jesus came to earth to save you from your sins. You look at that, I know you fill the blanks in. I know you say, Pastor, it's Christmas. We need something, something deeper, something more substantial, something that I couldn't come up with. Any one of us could have come up with that. That's simple stuff. Listen, this is the stuff that makes you and I different than every other religion, every other faith on the planet. This is the stuff that makes Christmas different than every other religious holiday on the earth. Every other faith tradition on the earth was started by a man or a woman who came and they taught people how to live. This is how you be a good person. This is how you sin less. This is how you can have a nice, comfortable life. This is how you do it. Jesus didn't just come to tell you what to do. He came to save you from you, from your own sins. This is why Christmas is such, such a great celebration. This is why not in a million years would we cancel church on Christmas Day. Because we gather together on the Lord's Day to celebrate the fact that Jesus came to save us from our sins. Some of you say, I don't understand what the big deal is. Let me just explain it to you like this. The Bible says that the one true God is a holy, holy, holy God. He's perfect. He's lacking nothing, and he will punish sin. The Bible also says that you and I belong in this same list with Abraham and David and Jacob and all the rest of them. We're sinners. Not just because we do bad things, but because in our hearts we are corrupted. And our sin separates us from God. And the Bible says not only does our sin separate us from God, but it puts us under his wrath. Paul tells the church in Ephesus, you were born as children under the wrath of God. And at Christmas, we hear the angels say to the shepherds, I have something to say to you that involves great joy. It's good news. This baby that's born in Bethlehem is not just been born so that he can write a book and tell you this is how to live a better life. He's dying to save you from the one that you messed up. He's born to save you from your sins. And one of the things that we need to acknowledge at Christmas is that nothing was really accomplished in Bethlehem. It's a great miracle God came down and became man. God humbled himself and took the form of a servant. It's amazing and it's exciting and we celebrate it. We should celebrate it. But nothing was accomplished in Bethlehem. This baby had to grow up. He had to live a life, the Bible says, of perfect obedience. He had to fulfill God's law perfectly where I haven't and you haven't. So at the end of his life, not in Bethlehem but in Jerusalem, he could be hauled outside the city and nailed to a cross. Not for his own sins, because he had none, but for ours. 
to fulfill what the angel told Joseph in Matthew 1. This baby will save his people from their sins. And so it's fitting this morning as we celebrate Christmas, not only to think about baby Jesus, but to think about the man Jesus who died for our sins. And we're going to do that this morning through the Lord's Supper. And when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're celebrating the salvation that we have in Jesus. The Lord's Supper is a celebration of what Jesus has done for us. I'm willing to bet that some of you have been to a funeral before. And at the funeral, the preacher or the minister or the pastor stood up and said something like, you know, old, old Billy Bob here who passed away, he didn't want this to be a sad day. He wanted it to be a celebration of his life. He doesn't want any mourning. He just wanted it to be a celebration of his life and that he loved Jesus. I don't really have any big beef with somebody saying that, but if you've ever been a family member in one of those services, I have. It kind of hurts. Because as much as you want to celebrate life, it also hurts to lose somebody. And right now, death does still have a sting. The separation is painful. The loneliness can be hurtful. And it is a funeral. And it's right to grieve and to mourn and to cry and to miss somebody. I just want you to understand that when we take the Lord's Supper... It really is not a funeral. And it really is not anything to grieve over. It's not a funeral because Jesus isn't dead. This baby, born in Bethlehem, who lived a life of perfect righteousness and died on the cross, taking our punishment, bearing our sins, was put into the ground dead. And the Bible says three days later, he came back to life. And the Bible says the resurrection of this very same Jesus is proof that he accomplished what he came to accomplish. Matthew says he is coming to save his people from their sins. And when he rose from the grave, it's like God's stamp of approval saying he did it. He did what he came to do. He accomplished the mission that I sent him on. So this morning when we take the Lord's Supper, it really isn't anything to grieve about. The Bible does call us to grieve our sin, but it never calls us to grieve what Jesus did for us on the cross. In fact, when this baby was born and this rescue mission kicked off, we read what the angel said in the Gospel of Luke. This is great joy that I'm about to talk to you about. Great joy. And we read in the book of Hebrews that Jesus, when he had grown up, when he had lived this life of righteousness and he was ready to die, it said that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Not the misery, not the wishing he didn't have to do it, but for the joy that was set before him. So this morning, we do celebrate the birth of Jesus. We celebrate the birth of the one who came to save us from our sins. But as we take the Lord's Supper, we also celebrate his life of obedience. And we celebrate his death on the cross for our sins, we celebrate his resurrection from the grave. And we celebrate the idea that one day he's coming back, not as a baby, but as a conquering king. And we'll eat with him and we'll drink with him in his kingdom.
If you're a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, we would love to, love to have you celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. When the elements come by, we would love for you to participate. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you've obeyed his command to be baptized, we would love for you to participate. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, maybe you, you came with family or friends, or maybe you're a, a first-time guest, we'd love for you to spend this time reflecting on Christmas, on the true meaning of Christmas, and how maybe Christmas needs to change for you and what it might look like for you to become a follower of Jesus. You bow and let's pray together. Father, what great news we celebrate at Christmas that a baby has been born who came to save us from our sins. Father, we're amazed at your grace and your mercy and humbling yourself in sending your son to redeem us, to reconcile us, to take the punishment and the curse that we deserve. Father, and we pray that this very simple idea would take root in our hearts and that it would overflow in worship. Father, as we take the Lord's Supper, as we think about the body of Christ that was broken for us, as we think about the blood of Christ spilled for us, we want to celebrate you and all that you have done for us. Father, we grieve our sin But most of all, we celebrate the fact that Jesus did what he came to do. He saved us. And there's nothing that we need to add to his finished work. Father, we love you and we celebrate this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen.